Now, girls, I hear Chad Reader is the one that really teaches y'all a lot of the cheers and stuff. Is that true? Chad will be giving a demonstration at 1215 in the parking lot. I want to see the, ha- the backwards flip, Chad. You're going to skip that. You know, if you watch TV late at night, you will see infomercials that promise if you will purchase this product, it will change your life. Have you seen those commercials before? For $19.95, if you purchase this electric toothbrush, it will not only change your teeth, it will change your life. It's valued at $5,000, but if you buy one today, we will throw in four for the price of one for $19.95. And most of the time, we're smart enough to know that that's just not the case. It's not life-altering. It may clean your teeth, but it's not going to change your world. Few things really are life-altering, life-changing. But this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are going to see life-altering principles. They're principles that if you are a Christian this morning, that you need to dig deep in your heart and plant these where they never get shaken. And if you're not a Christian, these are wonderful truths that that even this morning can cause your eternity to be changed. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the very first thing we see is this. God wants everyone to be saved. God wants everyone to cross the line of faith with him. Now, again, you might say this morning, okay, preacher, this is a a Billy Graham-type message We need to get right with Christ. And certainly there's people in a room this big that need to do that this morning. But I want to remind you, an interesting fact is that when God wrote this through Paul to Timothy, he was writing it to a Christian pastor, this letter. And when it was first read, it was read into a small church of people who were there who were predominantly Christian. So the truths that we're going to see this morning, as strange as it may sound, were first communicated to people who already knew Jesus Christ, that he was wanting to implant in them and remind them and put deep in their heart these life-altering principles that God, number one, wants everyone to come into a relationship with him. Now, in verse 1 through 4, following your Bibles or on the screen, it says, I urge. In other words, this is really important. I urge, first of all, in other words, I'm really pushing you. I want you to listen to what he's saying. Of first importance, pray. I, I, I want you to offer prayers, requests, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. Now, we're going to look on in just a moment at verse 4. But as I read and studied this this week, I, you know, it, it's talking about praying for people. It's talking about the importance of prayer. But then it quickly moves into the type of prayer that God's wanting them and us to prioritize above everything else. In verse 4... God who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, jump down to verse 7. Paul says this, And for this purpose, what I'm telling you that I want you to pray about, and knowing that God wants everyone to cross the line of faith with him, I was appointed a herald and apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith 
to the Gentiles. Now listen, we have 13 books in the New Testament that have Paul's name on it. And we believe in those letters that it is God speaking through Paul. How many of you believe that Paul always told the truth in those 13 letters? Okay, why is he saying here, I tell you the truth? Mom and dad, if you go home today and you you look at your, your child or you look at your grandchild and you say, I'm telling you the truth, that doesn't mean you've been lying to them for the last 15 years, correct? It means I want you to get a hold to this. This is very important. That's what Paul is saying. Here's what he said. Man, I want you to pray for everybody in your world. Think of the most hideous person, the most difficult person. I want you to pray for them, for your government leaders, because I want them to cross the faith line with Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back 2,000 years ago. In verse 2, Kyle, go back to verse 2. He says, I want you to pray for kings and all those who are in authority. This is about 30 years after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So it's about AD 64, 65. Guess who the emperor of The Roman Empire is the head king of kings of the Roman Empire. It's a sweet Christian man named Nero. How many of you know from history about Nero? Nero was a pedophile. He was a sexual pervert. He was a very wicked man. Even as Paul wrote these, his hands were stained with the blood of Christians. And here's what he's saying to this church. I want you to pray that Nero will cross the line and come into the faith of Jesus Christ. Don't you know those people had to be a little uncomfortable? And pray for all those in authority. Now, they were in Ephesus. That's where Timothy was pastoring. The government leaders in Ephesus were were hostile to Christians. They considered the Christians as being a threat to their economic and their social living there in, in the country, in the city. Ephesus is a wealthy city. It's a well-educated city. They did not like Christians. The officials of the town did not like Christians. And yet he's telling them, I want you to pray For your city officials who do not like you, who are trying to suppress our church, I want you to pray for them and not only to pray for them, but not only pray that maybe they move to China or halfway across the world, but pray that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. In this little church, this little church in Ephesus, Timothy pastored, Certainly, many of these people had been Jewish people before they became Christians. Jewish people in Jesus' day had a reputation of being snooty. Do you know anybody that's snooty? Snobby? I don't know what the right word is today, but I think that communicates. Sure you do. People that think they're better than other people. But the Jewish people, they were accused of being, by the Romans, they were accused of being haters of mankind. Can you imagine that? And so there's Jewish people here who probably grew up with a snobbery that God loves us and he doesn't love you. And here's what God's saying to them through Paul and Timothy. Guess what? God loves everyone. And he wants everyone to cross the line of faith with him. Okay, why is that important? If you never cross that line, that's important for you. It's important because in our world today, there is still opposition, believe it or not, to the belief that Christ wants everyone to be saved. There's theological systems that believe God's chosen some for salvation and some for damnation. 
Which side do you want to be on in that chosen equation? For, for smoking or non-smoking? For eternity. That's a great belief as long as you're one of the chosen. Amen? But look in verse 4. Verse 4, it says, Who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That word wants means to will something. It means to desire something. When he uses that little biblical word all, listen to what it means. It means everyone and anyone. It means the individual in the totality are the totality of individuals. Now, it's not universalism. Universalism says that everyone will be saved. Now, listen, Christian folks. There is a popular book out today that's being circulated widely, written by a popular Christian author that basically says, in the end, we all end up in heaven. Hitler's going to be there. Billy Graham, everybody's going to be there. That's not what this is teaching. But what it's teaching is a wonderful truth is that God's heart is that everyone cross the line of faith with him. Now, some of you may say, if God wants it to happen, then why doesn't it just happen? You've got to understand God's will in three ways. One way is we would call it God's absolute will. God's absolute will means that that he has decreed something and that it is absolutely going to happen. He has said that every person is destined to die once and then face God. That's going to happen. He has said Jesus Christ is going to return to earth someday. That's going to happen. That's his absolute will. Then there's his permissive will. You go out to eat today, do not spend a lot of time praying whether you want mustard or ketchup on your burger. God doesn't care, even though I believe Jesus would have been a ketchup guy. I, I really, he doesn't care, okay? He doesn't care. You, you have freedom to go pickles or onions or non-onions, depending on if you've got a date or you want to kiss your wife later or whatever. You know, you might think about that. Permissive will. And then there's God's perfect will. God's perfect will is the realm where God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your career, who you marry, where you live. And for you to come into the faith, but he doesn't force that on us. In other words, God gives us a choice in that matter, whether where we respond properly to him or don't respond properly to him. You see that all the time in this world with crime and murders and sinful behavior. But what a beautiful, phenomenal truth that God wants all people to be saved. You know, in Paul's day, in Paul's day, there was a view that the gods, multiple gods, really did not like humanity. And here in the middle of that world, God speaks out and God says, I love everybody. And I want everyone to come into the faith. A Bible scholar years ago named George Weishart said, the Bible is God's message to us saying that he is friendly to mankind. Number one, this morning, that if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. this. If you are a Christian, you need to let it sink deep from your head to your heart. God wants everyone to come into his family. Now, here's the second truth that is so important. It was 2,000 years ago, and it is today. And that's this. Salvation is found only in Christ. Now, if you're a Christian... You better wake up to this issue right here. 
Because this is the hot button issue of the day. If you're not a Christian, you better come to terms with what's truth and what's not truth on this issue. And by the way, it was a hot button issue 2,000 years ago. In the world that this letter was first read in, in, in the city of Ephesus, historians tell us they worshiped as many as 50 different gods. Can you imagine that? 50 different gods. And here's Christianity coming to the scene and saying this there's only one way to heaven. Not 50 ways, not 10 ways, but one ways. 2,000 years ago, hot button issue. And today it is. I, I don't watch Oprah, but I saw an Oprah show last week where she interviewed Joel Osteen. It was a good interview. And, and this must be on her mind. Maybe God's working on her heart because I've, I've seen video clips where her discussing about Jesus being the only way. And she asked Joel Osteen, is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? And Joel Osteen said, yes. But is he? Two conversations I've had in recent years show what it's like in our world today and what our mindsets are. One was with a 95-year-old man in Texas. 95-year-old man. And... I'm sure he is not on this earth anymore. He'd be like 115. He would be in some record book, or we'd see him in the newspaper. But he told me, I remember talking to him. He grew up within a baseball's throw of a church. He said, Chris, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. And I believe that God's going to get me to heaven. This man lived in the Bible Belt his whole life. Several years ago in Tennessee, I talked to a 25-year-old man. We talked about Jesus Christ and about getting to heaven. Here's what he told me. Chris, there's no way that there's only one way to God. There's got to be many ways that we can get to God. But the Bible clearly declares, folks, that Jesus Christ is the way. In fact, it tells us in this passage that Jesus Christ is the only bridge to God. He is the only bridge to God. In verse 5, it says, For there is one God... And one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, you notice he says there, leave that there, Kyle. There is one God. Judaism, which Christianity comes from Judaism, one of their big tenets was there's one God. In fact, a devout Jew got up every day and quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's great for Jews. It's good for Christians. But remember, they're in Ephesus where there was as many as 50 different gods that people worship. And here's Paul saying, hey, guys, there's one God. Gnosticism was a false version of Christianity that was springing up. And Gnosticism said there's two gods, and the two gods fought each other. They were hostile to each other. What great news it was for them to hear. There's not multiple gods you got to please, or there's not even two warring gods you got to please. There's one God. I've heard missionaries in recent years that were in parts of the world that we would say are pretty pagan and heathenistic, where... They talked to people who believed in many gods. And when they showed them from the Bible that the Bible says there's one God, it was like, what a relief to know there's one God. And you notice it says one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 
Here was another thing that was happening. This Gnosticism, this belief that was springing up, they did not believe Jesus Christ was human. They believed that your, your body was evil, your spirit was good, so there was no way that Jesus could be a man. This is 30 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. When Jesus was alive, people did not believe that he was God. They knew he was man. They could touch him. They could see when he hit his, his thumb with a hammer that it hurt and, and that he screamed out, but he didn't cuss because he was perfect and didn't sin. But they didn't doubt that he was man. They doubted whether he was God. Now, 30 years later, they're starting to doubt whether he was really a man. They said, no, he was human. It says he is the one mediator. A mediator, notice it doesn't say multiple mediators, it says one. A mediator is the person that comes in when, when there's factions that can't get along to bridge the gap. You got a holy, perfect God on one side, you got sinful man on the other, and the only one that could mediate or bring them together was Jesus Christ. Not good works not Buddhism, not I'm religious, not I'm Baptist, but Jesus Christ. Many of you have seen this little uh, vivid illustration of Jesus Christ being the bridge. And it's so perfect. We're on one side and God is on the other. And the only bridge, the only thing that will get us to God is Jesus Christ. What a profound thing for them to hear 2,000 years ago. And for us to be reminded of today, if you're a Christian, don't be shaken. It's not going to change. Jesus is the only way. And if you're not a Christian, understand this morning that there's not 50 ways to get to God. There's one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. And he tells us something else here that's very wonderful, too, that Jesus paid the price for our salvation. You, You don't have... To pay a price for your salvation. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to do extra things. Look in verse 6. Who gave himself a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. That word ransom had an interesting historical meaning. The word ransom. This ransom was what was used in Jesus' day to free a slave. When a slave wanted to become a free person, they paid the ransom to get their freedom. And what this is saying here, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he paid the ransom, he paid the penalty for your sins and my sins. We don't have to pay it. I was watching an old cowboy and Indian movie uh, Friday night, and, and I was reading, so I wasn't paying a lot of attention to it, but, but the Indian tribes... This tribe had offended their gods. And so to please the god, a couple of the male Indians, I don't know why it couldn't have been female Indians, but it had to be male Indians, they had to be tortured and suffer to appease the god. So they took these, these little hooks and they stuck them in their chest and they hung them. And after they did that for a while, then the gods were okay again. I don't know about you, but, but if we have to do that to please our god... I'm going with Wayne, aren't y'all? <laughs> no, it ended up being, it had to be the pastor. We don't have to do that. The price was paid for us in Jesus Christ. So let me, let me ask you this morning, what do we do with this info? 
What, what do we do with what we've seen? Let me give you three thoughts. Number one, let it soak in your head to your heart. These were presented in the Scripture not as just a simple come-to-Christ message, but as really significant theological points to drive your life. Secondly, pray much for people. I put there, pray for the salvation of others. I would, I would start that by saying just pray, pray a lot for people, period. In verse 1, I urge, first of all, a lot of times we pray when nothing else works, right? Well, I've tried everything else, so now I'll pray. I've given money, I've argued, now I'll pray. God says, first of all, pray. And he uses three words, requests, prayers, and intercessions to kind of, kind of pile it on to emphasize this. And he uses a present tense verb phrase here to be made for everyone, which means I want you to pray for other people and I want you to keep praying for them and keep praying for them and keep praying for them. He says in verse 2 and 3, for kings and all those in authority... This is good and pleases God our Savior. Now, verse 8 is the last part of this section that's very significant. I want men everywhere to lift holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. You know, in our society, and and I, I know since I've been a kid, we've been taught when you pray, you close your eyes and bow your head, which that's fine. But when you look in the Bible, you probably don't see that as much. You see people kneeling. You see people laying on their face. And one of the common ways that Jewish men prayed in the synagogue or the temple was they stood and they raised their hands and they had their palms pointing toward heaven. Either with their face up towards heaven, maybe eyes closed, maybe eyes open, I don't know. But that's how they prayed. And in fact, in some of the catacombs, the, the caves underneath Rome where persecuted Christians lived in the first and second century, they found paintings that date back to that era that show people praying, standing with uplifted hands, uplifted arms, and uplifted hands to Christ. You notice it says in there to lift holy hands. The emphasis there is on holy The idea of the hands is the idea of your life because you do life with your hands. And and here's what he's saying, Christians. Don't think that you're going to ring the bell with God when you've got a lot of junk in your life. God hears the prayers of people who have pure hearts and holy hearts. Without anger or disputing, he's talking about our relationships with others. You see, here's why many of us pray and we feel like nothing ever happens. There's too much junk in our life. There's too many wrong relationships with other people. And God's sitting there with folded hands waiting on us to get our act together before he's going to start responding to our prayers. God is not Santa Claus. He doesn't loan out and just give out his power. It's based on our relationship with him. But he wants us to get in that relationship. Get your life holy. Get your life right with others the best you can. And pray for other people. Several years ago, I was watching a TV show, and they were interviewing a guy who was the leader of one of a major religious group in our country. And this guy had to be in his 80s. 
And they asked him on national TV, how would you pray? How do you pray? How would you tell us to pray for the president of the United States? Now, it was either George Bush number one or it was Bill Clinton. I don't remember who it was. Here's what this religious leader said. I kid you not. He said, oh, I don't know. I don't know how I'd pray for it. Let me tell you what, how do you pray for President Obama? How do you pray for our senators? How do you pray for our government leaders? Well, use your head. One, you pray they'll be, they'll be wise. Amen? That they'll have wisdom. You pray that they will be protected. You pray for God's blessings on them. And then you go back to this chapter and you see the main thing you pray for, that if they don't know Christ, that they will get saved. And they will get right with Jesus Christ. You see, we're caught up in Republican and Democrat. Let me tell you what will change our country is our leaders getting right with Jesus Christ. It, it, listen, we got a born-again president. We got born-again people that are on the Supreme Court. We got that. And I'm not saying any of them aren't. I don't know their hearts. But I'm saying if we got people radically sold out to Christ, it wouldn't matter what their flavor was. And that's what he's saying. That's what he said in verse 2 and 3. And then if these people get right, we can live peaceful and quiet lives. See, what God's saying is you pray for people. But the thing that you ought to pray the most for is they will find Christ and get right with Christ. Let me tell you, what will change your marriage is if your husband or wife becomes a Christian. You're going, amen. That's what my wife's saying, amen. If he'll get saved, we'll be better. They may be saying that about you, husband and wife. Oh, you may, you may need to go to counseling, no doubt about it. You may need to read good books and work on things. What, 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 what would change our school system? What would change your children? What would change your parents? Nothing more will change them than coming into a relationship with Christ. That's what he's saying. By the way, in about 200 years, this began to happen in the Roman Empire, and it springboarded Christianity forward. What do we do? Number one, you pray for people and you pray they'll come to know Christ. And secondly, you make sure you've crossed this bridge with Christ. In verse 4, he says something. He says that you will come to a knowledge of the truth. That word knowledge means an experiential knowledge. It means not that you know something about someone or something here but that you know it from what's happened in your life. If you haven't crossed that bridge with Christ, I pray even this morning that you will. Let's bow our heads. This morning, if you're a Christian, boy, I challenge you. I challenge you to pray to God right where you're seated and say, God, set me on fire. Give me a heart to pray. Give me, God, the right theology, the right beliefs, and help me to loudly proclaim them. And if you're not a Christian or you're unsure, right where you're seated, 
Would you pray with me where you are and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And today, I want to turn from my sins. I believe you're God's son who died for me. And I ask you now to come into my heart. I ask you now to be my Lord and Savior. Let me have your attention just for a moment. In a minute, we're going to stand and and just bow our heads as the instrument's playing and Michael sings. And I'm challenging you to respond to what God said to you this morning. Maybe you just prayed and asked Christ in your heart, or maybe you're ready to do that today. There'll be ministers down front. We can help you with that decision. You come today and give your life to Christ. Maybe you'd like to join the church this morning. We would love for you to do that. One way you can do it is by coming during the invitation. We'll help you do that today. Christian, where you're seated, where you'll be standing or at the altar, will you say to God this morning, God, I'm, I'm going to hold on to the right truths. I'm going to proclaim them. And God, I'm going to pray much for people while you've left me here on this earth. Will you do that? Let's stand. And as God leads you this morning, respond.